to us, what we've already covered. But we'll do so within four or five minutes. And then I apologize to those who have been here who are going to hear some of the same ideas repeated. The idea that we're here for is to give a kind of literary, historical, slash philosophical analysis of the Tanakh, of the 24 books of the Bible. We began by raising the question, why study the Tanakh at all? And we answered the question that this, beyond all else, of course it's much more than this, but this certainly (coughs) contains the ideas, ideals, and values with which we are going to impact upon the world. We want to change the world with the word. We want to change the world with the world, with the word that is in this 24 books. Ideas, ideals, and values. Values to the Kamishpat, justice and righteousness. Ideas, monotheism. Ideals, messianic era. These are examples of ideas, ideals, and values with which we are going to impact and ultimately change the world. We made a point whether or not we are impacting in fact, we were able to answer the question, yes, extraordinarily so. How so? That 4,000 years ago, when Abraham began this whole entire process, there were one person who had this integrated sense of where he wants to go, Abraham, one out of 10 million approximate people, and then all of a sudden, we had seen that 2,000 years later, Christianity comes along as a daughter religion of Judaism and absorbs these ideas, recognizes the quote-unquote Old Testament, and therefore continues our march forward through history. This is Maimonides' point in the ninth chapter, eighth or ninth chapter of Yechor Melachim Torah. The positive role that Christianity played in developing the idea of Messiah and carrying forth these ideas, ideals, and values into the world itself. 600 years later, yet Islam, Muhammad, does exactly the same thing. He carries our ideas, ideals, and values, though perverted a bit, as Christianity did as well, into his world. Whatever world he dominated, whatever world he conquered, he brought our ideas, ideals, and values. Therefore, that result, 2,000 or 4,000 years, let's say, after Abraham possibly began, which is where we are today, Abraham was 2000 before the Common Era, approximately. Now we're 2000 after the Common Era. In 4,000 years, we have impacted upon 1.8 billion Christians, 1.2 billion Muslims, which means that we've impacted on 3 billion people, which actually is one half of the world, which is an extraordinary accomplishment. It's an amazing feat that we've done that. How so? By the sword? No, rather by the word by impacting upon certain key critical people who brought this message forward. So we've done that. Then we raise the question, how do we actually impact? We had three distinct models as to how we impact. First, the linear, through one's family, multiplying. That was the school on the hill model. Second, through concentric circles, which is almost a contemporary event, that one person, through concentric circles, can ultimately, ultimately impact upon a larger group of people. And finally, through what we said was random acts. Your random acts, we use the example of random acts of kindness. Your random acts of kindness can impact more so because you're going to do an act of kindness. We gave the example of the person who gave $20 million to Columbia and the $6 million woman who gave to Stern College. Because of somebody, something that was good, who didn't intend to have this reaction, ultimately that impact was extraordinary. 
for Columbia to get $20 million because some teacher said thank you to a young man who was waiting, who was waiting on them, is amazing. That little act of kindness, that he said thank you to that man, ultimately led to $20 million of donations to Columbia University 20 years later. He was 40 or 45, 20 when it happened, 25 years later, he made his millions of dollars, I'll give you $20 million back to Columbia. So a random act of kindness led to an extraordinarily great effect. We had spoken about W. Clement Stone, where small hinges open large, heavy doors. Right? So all that's what we covered. Now, one point to add to all of that is that what we've seen throughout Jewish history is that there's a key to how all this works. It's what I'll call a selective process. Selective process means, and it is the most important key, which we haven't spoken about before. Selective process, one might say, of Jewish history. Right? What does that mean, selective process? What is being selected over here? What, in effect, affects everybody here, to one degree or another? What selective process am I talking about? How we affect the world. That's point number one, granted. Point number two, does every single Jew affect the world? Answer, unfortunately, no. Although, you as parents might affect your children, who might ultimately affect the world. Obviously. Right? Einstein's parents didn't realize at the time, but they produced a man who was going to impact extraordinarily so on the world. Maimonides' parents didn't know that he's going to become that kind of a person who's going to, to, to influence the world for a thousand years from his point of view to this year, to this, to this time, still in, incredibly impactful. Maimonides. Your parents just sure have no idea about My that. parents were sure enough, right? <laughs> they probably said the opposite. They knew they'd send me back. So you know, that's one impact. That's true. Parents do create people who make impact much more so than the parents ever know about. That's clear. That's obvious. That's true. Fine. No. But what does selective process really mean? It means that we've seen throughout Jewish history, and look at this disparity, which this quote, this statement, really explains. 1.8 billion Christians 1.2 billion Muslims 14 million Jews and we're along we're around much longer than the other two so what does the process really mean? it means that not everybody succeeds not only in impacting but not everybody succeeds even in absorbing the ideas, ideals and values and those who do not succeed in absorbing the ideas, ideals, and values, those who do not maintain the covenant or berit, which is the most important word in your Bible, in your 24 books of the Bible, berit, covenant between man and God, if you don't maintain that berit, then what happens? You're lost to Jewish history. And therefore you're not counted, not only not among the impactors, but you're not counted even among the Jews. Now, let's take an extreme example of that. Right? Yesterday, I had in my office a couple that's going to get married in my synagogue on May 25th. And David says, I want to... Ashkenazim, not from our area. Once she's from Marble, he's from Long Island someplace. And he says, I want to learn a little bit more about Judaism... 
I have no background. I'm embarrassed that I don't know any Hebrew. I said, fine, we'll talk to Rabbi Buckwald. You'll learn Hebrew in five easy sessions and know about Judaism in five more. Fine. She had minimal Jewish education. We talked about two hours and said, well, his sister also wants to raise her child. She had a baby Wednesday. This is Sunday. This is Wednesday. As a Jew. Very short. I said, that's really great. What's her name? Leah Rachel. I said, wow, what an interesting name. Leah Rachel. She says, yeah, her husband wasn't so happy. Why? Well, as a Catholic, didn't really sit so well with him. I said, oh, so she's into marriage? Yeah. Okay. I said, and what really happened over here? How did it really work out? They had an interface wedding ceremony. A rabbi. It was hard to find a rabbi that would do this. And a priest. And a... It gets worse. Yes. It's worse. We're talking a little bit more, and, I, and uh, he has an older sister. Oh, really? What happened? Oh, well, is she the one that wants to raise kids Jewishly? No, no, no. She converted to Methodism. Mm-hmm. To be a Methodist? I said, why? Well, she married a very much fr- from Catholic, <laughs> and he would never want to marry a Jew. So she converted. She said, the compromise was that she would convert to becoming a Methodist. And he could deal with that, though it's really an intermatch from that point of view, but the Catholic can tolerate a Methodist, which he cannot do with a, as a Jew. So now, next, my next point is, when I talk to the couples, I talk about mikveh. Do you think I was going to talk about mikveh to this couple? Yeah. Not a shot. Right, not a shot. So, but I said, they do want to raise their kids as Jewish, so my next statement is, do you want kids to intermarry? Does he really care about that? She said, he said about her parents, well, her parents, who were good conservative Jews, would be very upset if they did intermarry, if these children, or their, the parents' grandchildren. And she said, well, I never even dated a Jew, uh, a non-Jew. And he said, I never dated a Jew. So look how strange this is, right? This whole thing's working out. So I said, okay. So now we have to talk about what does it mean to be a Jew. Forget about getting married. That's on the back burner. Right now, to try to explain to them why they should raise their kids as Jews. And if you want to raise kids as a Jew, what's going to be important? So what do you think I chose to speak to them about? What's going to convey to them, or at least to their child, what's going to be a Jew? Shabbat. Shabbat's a great beginning. Right? And explain to them all about Shabbat. And you should have seen their faces full. I said, we don't use electricity, we don't ride in a car, we don't handle you money. There? So what you, sorry? <laughs> you can't believe you even went there. I've never... No, no, I do it it well. I do it well. They didn't even know about Shabbat? They didn't know about Shabbat? He zero. She knew a bit. But she's, you know, conservative people know. Religious conservatives know. She wasn't religious. A religious conservative. Conservatives are very large. I don't even people know about it. Only New York. Muslims do. Right. So now we spoke about it, but with it, I said, and we don't watch television. I said, you know something? We don't even use the trick of telling my housekeeper to open it, and we don't use a clock. So what do you do all day? The best question. So what do you think I answered? You work. No, I don't work. Oh, I work, yeah. Most Jews don't. I interact with my family. I said, Did you, using my child from week. Want we to change physically? Yeah, trillion cells were developed. Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. We interact two to three hours on a Shabbat table. I couldn't believe it. Then we play games. Because I want to see how my kids have changed over, the, over that week. And my job as a parent is to take note of those changes and to react to them. To raise questions. To discuss issues. Such as cheating in schools. Would you cheat? I raise these questions with my kids. Use anything from the parasha. Use anything from life, from school. How they're reacting to these issues. We stimulate. We challenge. We ask questions. We debate. We argue. 
Part of the problem is when you have a 22-year-old who's a college graduate and a 7-year-old or 8-year-old doesn't really want to talk about the same thing, so that's part of the challenge of being a parent. Had a focused discussion in one way, not to alienate the other. You know, somebody ends up maybe leaving the table distressed and goes to read Harry Potter or something. But okay, it's also a matter of discussion and debate. You know, why is he reading Harry Potter? Why is she reading Harry Potter? So, the point I'm trying to make is that that David's family has lost the Jewish people. Two of his sisters are lost Jewish people, and for some strange reason, David wants to maintain that link. Right? And for some strange reason, he came to me, and we're going to try and maintain that link. So, he was not cutting off that link, as opposed to his two sisters, who were selected out of the process. His two sisters will not be impactful Jews. They won't even be Jews. Unless something strange happens. Something strange can always happen. Selective process means that Jewish history is a selective process. Meaning, some people are going to make it, and some people are not going to make it. Clearly. In David's case, people are not going to make it. His two sisters and their children are not going to make it. David, maybe yes, maybe no, probably... No, right. Probably no. I don't think he's going to be that committed. I gave him Tilton's book on nine questions. I told him to buy Jewish literacy. Look at their book, Don't in How to Raise a Jewish Child. Maybe there's a shot. They're living on uh, in Manhattan. He's a financial trader, and these are very successful people. Both, they went to the University of Pennsylvania. Very successful people. They're going to make a lot of money together in life, right? He's a trader, she's a stock investor, whatever it is. Very aware people. And if we get them on the right track, this might, of course, bring them to maintaining that link and impacting upon others. Right? That might happen. It's a random accident that came to my shoes. Why'd you come to the shoe? You know, why'd you some church down the road? You know what? You didn't care. Oh, it's very pretty. It's very nice. Mm-hmm. And we heard the rabbi. I want to finish with that. <laughs> they did hear about us. She's from Marvel. They did hear about us. So the, the issue over here is. Here you have people who might maintain the link and not be submerged by Jewish history. The sisters obviously are gone. Second story, similar to the first. My point is to illustrate what selective process in Jewish history really means. Those who maintain their Jewishness, the idea that they have values, the covenant of Edith, and those who do not. A couple comes into my office. This is about two or three years ago. And... Um, Ashkenazi couple we're discussing why did you come to my office they're not getting married oh actually said we are going to get married we want you but we want to meet you first I said but you're not marrying my shul no nothing I didn't get what they came in for I said well she what's your background she from Avenue J is 22nd she came from a Haredi family a very right wing family I said Avenue J is 22nd I want you to flappish she says, yeah, that's just what my parents told me, Goyim go to. We're the same boat, so don't laugh so loud, right? <laughs> They're that right wing, that Goyim, meaning mine was not choose a Goyim, they go to that school. They still there, right. They're still there. No, it's a good story, more interesting. So she went, at the end she went to an Ivy League law school, very nice, and she couldn't live with her parents, a very narrow view of life, and then what happened to her, what did she do? She left all of religion. Right? Nothing kosher. She eats ham. That was Okay. She meets a guy who happens to be down in the Jersey Shore someplace who hasn't been in shul in 13 years. He's 26 and has been in shul with his bar mitzvah. So now what? He says, well, we went to the city and we met 
Right? He happened to go to the Jewish center, Rabbi Shachter, J.J. Shachter. He was a very bright guy, he's a PhD from Harvard, a really smart guy, he's a good friend of mine. He presented to a synagogue a modern Orthodox view of Shabbat. Right? What we just spoke about. And she said, I never heard of such an idea before. Where I came from, Shabbat was all negative and knows and very negatively portrayed. And he didn't know what Shabbat was at all. They liked the idea. So they had to a We liked it there. We were living on the Jersey Shore. Do you know anybody there? Rabbi Labaton. So now we're living here at Jersey Shore and we want to get married. So I said to them, of course, I will not marry you. Why will I not marry them? You want to commit No, no, no. Why will I not marry them? They're both Jewish for sure. Is one of No, 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 it's not, no problem, no. I didn't ask that question. I'm not as intrusive as my dentist did. I didn't know or care. The, because I said to them, you come from a very striking background. She. And he comes from the oppositely striking background. He drinks beer and eats ham every Sunday, watching the football game with his friends. She never heard of such a thing in her background growing up. I said, I don't know, I'm not convinced that you can really make it together as a couple. So I can't do a wedding. I was told this by Rabbi Joseph Pauk at Boston University, I was teaching at BU 25 years ago. He will not do a wedding because he doesn't think that these people are going to make it together. You know, one of the funny stories is that when Joey Mizrahi was going to marry Natalie, uh, Murray's son, right, I used to do the wedding. He met her in April or May, he wanted the wedding in August. So I'm not doing the wedding. Why not? So you don't know each other. I said, you don't know each other. I'm not doing the wedding. You get married, but I'm not doing the wedding. He was so floored by that statement, they ended up waiting until November to get married. And I did the wedding in November. So and that's true. It's a true story. So I said, you have to Are study. together? Yeah. yeah. You're Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I told this couple, you have to study at least once a week with me for a year. Then we'll talk about you getting married. They did. For the next year, they came in every single Sunday. We spoke about what she's all about. And then I did speak about McVeigh. They said, she may want to be sure made at McVeigh. Because that's her background. For 20 years, she did that. It was part of her blood. And when I explained to him that there's no sex for two weeks out of the month off the chair on the floor he couldn't deal with that what are you talking about I mean that let alone what they were doing right then and there right so it was a very very exciting year for me at the end of the story they became part of a positive link on the Jewish history in that he decided the old, I want to do everything for her and they are a wonderful model model tax couple Extraordinary, wonderful people, just, just great people that I, I speak to all the time, and um, not part of my community, they're Ashkenazic, but just wonderful people. Right? So they chose to be part of Jewish history. They chose to forge a link on that chain of Jewish history. Many Jews do not. In America, you have 40% of Jews, 2.5 million, who have chosen not to be part of Jewish history. No connection whatsoever. So they are not part of the Jewish link from Sinai to Mashiach. The selective process means that Jewish history is selecting those people who are going to be part of it, those who are not going to be part of it. Obviously, most Syrians are part of it. We identify, we're concerned, we're involved, we educate our children, they go to Yeshiva, so we are part of it. But obviously, that's only around this area. Leave this area, 
and go someplace in the Midwest, you find exactly the opposite, where an overwhelming majority of people do not want to be part of this. 70% of Denver Jews intermarry. 70% in Denver. And it's all, that's the way it is out there. We're part of a very select group. That's been true throughout Jewish history. Those Jews who have chosen to be part of the process and those Jews who have chosen not to be part of the process. 10,000, that's the number given, but it might be more, of Jews convert to Christianity in the Middle Ages. Who knows how many convert to Islam? Sorry? Of course. At least. No, 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 voluntary. No, of course you have hundreds of thousands of Jews. Fourth, look at who are under the no, people who believe that Christianity was correct. They said, you know, we've been around for two thousand years. Keep telling my chef, we believe Jewish, we believe that Christianity is correct, so they convert to Christianity. They have met many of these kinds. Okay, so now that summarizes all that we've done so far. One second, done so far. Now look at this sheet in front of you. Our idea over here is to give you a sense of the ideas, ideals, and values. I have extras of ideas, ideals, and values of the Jewish books of the Bible. I want to give you a sense. So the first five books of the Bible we didn't speak about. We will come back to that more in depth and more in detail. Then we looked at the first four books called the English Shonim Early Prophets and we spoke of them as kind of a social historical view of what took place during the years around Joshua, 1240-1200, all the way to the end of Kings, which is the year 560 before the Common Era. A social, historical view. Military issues were included in this set of books. These first four books, then we spoke about the numbers 5 through 19, known as the Maharonim. What are these about? These books are the rabbinic commentary upon what took place during those first four books. A rabbinic commentary. My analogy was, if you want to know about the Vietnam War, what do you do? You read the New York Times, you read Time Magazine, you read Music Magazine. If you want to know what the rabbi said about the Vietnam War, you don't look at Time or Newsweek or the New York Times, but you look at the rabbinic sermons. These are the rabbinic sermons of what took place during that period of time. Clear? Right? These are the rabbinic sermons. Those Nadim are the rabbis of those days. Then we start more specifically, and we realize these are out of chronological order, and therefore we have over here, we start with the Navi Amos. Amos, number 10, who prophesied around 750 before the Common Era, was the first literary prophet. What does literary prophet mean? The first prophet who publicly wrote down his prophecies, because he wanted impact. And we spoke about what social condition brought forth this phenomenon. Why did he all of a sudden write down his prophecies when Eliyahu Hanavi, Elisha Hanavi did not write down their prophecies? There were other Bananavim, other prophets prior to this. They didn't write their prophecies down. Amos did. We spoke about that. I don't want to repeat that. Right? And then we tried to show how each one of these prophets represents either a single or a multiple idea, ideal, or value. Example given. Now the Yoel. What does he teach me? The difference between incident and event. We spoke about that. Not everything in life is an event, but some things are events that you might think is an incident. And then God help you. Because you missed the call at that point. 
is war Saddam Hussein an incident or is it an event from God's point of view from our point of view theologically is it only a political military affair or does it have some kind of theological overtones to it is it an event or an incident that's a question that rabbis and thinkers and Jewish philosophers have to evaluate right not for now that's your ill and we spoke about Obadiah Obadiah only has one chapter what's it about what one brother does to another brother Obadiah is intensely angry why? because Edom who was the brother of Yaakov a thousand years earlier chose war against Yaakov enslaved Yaakov not Yaakov per se but his children or great 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 grandchildren if you will and because of that Obadiah pronounces a curse against Edom, Esau. What is your all about? Again, we can go into great depth and detail about all these, all these prophets. Welcome. We can go into that. We're not. We're just going to just give one or two lines. I want to give you a sense with one or two or three lines that you should know philosophically what's in these books. What's your not really all about? The power of change on multiple levels. Who can change? Here, not the Jews who change, but the pagans who change. Nineveh goes ahead, sorry, Yonah goes ahead to the city of Nineveh, a large city, 120,000 people. And what happens? He goes along and he proclaims with five words, in 40 more days Nineveh shall be overturned. He touches a chord and everybody all of a sudden changes. Now, you might raise a question. That's unrealistic. Can one man with five words change an entire population? Today for sure. Today for sure. I agree. Yes. Today could be. The right word in the right cultural context will, could change people radically. There are certain key words in a culture, whatever the culture may be, or the smart culture, Jewish culture, which touch raw nerves. What, for example, is a key word in Jewish culture? In a contemporary period, I mean. Last 50, 60 years. Holocaust. Holocaust, exactly. Or Nazi. Mm. Imagine a Jew calling another Jew a Nazi. If that doesn't stir your blood, nothing will. And that, of course, happens occasionally. People call Rabin a Nazi. And that surprise, not surprisingly, he was assassinated recently after. Why? Because once you're called a Nazi, it means you're open game for anybody to kill. That's what happens. You vilify with the right key term it's going to have impact way beyond your words right so that is that's, that's clear so now what key term did Yonah use Od Arbaim Yom Ninveh Nepachet 40 more days Ninveh will be overturned what's the key word in that verse now if you were a good biblical Jew it would strike you immediately that question, you hear it, you say, oh, that's clearly the key term. And here, even if you were not only a good biblical Jew, if you were a good pagan, you should know that word, if you were living then. Anybody a good pagan here? <laughs> I'm sure there are some of... We know that pagans here. We, we, know, we know this. I tell people that most of my best friends are pagans. That's true. They are, that's true. Why? Because they have physical, corporeal understandings about God. Then God is up there, or here. When you have a physical conversation of God, you're a pagan. Right? 
I don't think most people have a physical representation of God. When you say, God help me, what are you saying? If you think God is any place, do you think God is in a place? No. So yes. where's God? Everywhere. You say Pagan, got him. <laughs> if God is everywhere, you're saying he's in a place. <laughs> Everywhere. That's a pagan. Every place is paganism. God's beyond. The truth is God's beyond place. God is not physical and occupies space and time any place. He's not every place. He's no place, actually. You're thinking of God as some, some being who's every place. God is not a being who is every place. That's paganism. Sophisticated form of paganism. Yes, very sophisticated form of paganism. But it's true that most of my friends are pagan. They don't know it, but they are. What I'm saying is not a hadush. Sorry? What's the answer to the question? God's not physical. We're working on this. The answer. God is there. God is there. God is everywhere. Hashem is everywhere. Well, we got another one. Got another one. No one's thinking of it in terms of deep philosophy like some of my best friends. That may be true, but that's what the Raman wants of you. The Raman wants that. That's true as well. Sorry? Who? The, the Ravad, not that he was, but he defended those who hold corporeal understandings of God, because God is of God. The Rambam one of says, if you don't have a pure idea about God, a pure idea about God, then you could be viewed as a pagan. You can't say God is everywhere, because then you're putting God within space, and you're a, that's paganism. So that's to that's coming going to come up later on. We'll talk about the Shema. That's down the road. But you're upset about that. No, it's wild. It's not. It's true that most people, most, yeah, most people don't have an appropriate understanding about what God is. And that Harambam, the one in the says that if you, don't, if you have the wrong representation of God, then you're a pagan. So that's a serious question. It's a serious question. Okay, David? Then I'll go back to this. I'm trying to think about what word it was that you're not... You're getting there. Yeah, so what's the key cultural term? Please. I don't know. Without knowing what... That word overturned the Hebrew? Good. Near yeah. Two points. Very good. Now, where, think biblically, where does that word appear such that it's going to make those people of Nineveh change their ways? Exactly. That's the key issue. Near is a very powerful word. So powerful that it inspires dread. Give me a contemporary year and a half old word which would inspire dread in you terrorism terrorism will better 9-11 9-11 means helpless attack do nothing about it death that's what it means it's a very frightening term so now I don't know how much staying power 9-11 will have in this culture and our society chances are have a great deal of staying power because it was so, such a shock to our American system 3,000 or 4,000 people died by an enemy attack which hasn't happened on home territory in the history of this country. Right? Has anybody ever attacked us on our home territory? Sorry? For long as And that was less. That was, that was a, half, a third of that. That was 1,700 people. That was war. That was military. So it has a... Yeah, but wasn't the war in it wasn't uh, people going to work in the morning. Right. No, it's very different. We agree. You're both right. Oh, you're both right. So, think of how... The terrorists declared war towards America years ago. We just weren't listening. That's correct. That's true. That's all true. But again, so 9-11 is a, is a great, powerful statement. Just use that term. It's a great, powerful statement that people are going to wake up and listen to. You want money from country to press, just say 9-11. You got money. 
Understandably so. I'm not criticizing, but understandably so. So, David's quite correct. Nepachet is a term that reverberated in the eyes of Jews, in the ears of Jews, depending upon if it was spoken or written, and in the ears of pagans as well. They knew down the storm Amura. It was a thousand years earlier than Yonah, but it had cultural lasting power. And therefore, it worked. Nineveh changes radically who they are. All of a sudden, everybody hears, a man of God. Now, pagans believed in God, or gods, and they believed in multi-gods. So if your God came along and said about my world, that your God said that my world is going to be destroyed, I'm going to respect that. I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of my God. I'm afraid of your God too. Especially if he's a God of Israel, who had this reputation. Now, where do we see this? I know we don't have time right now to show you this, but last Pesach, I gave a... Um, that speech was about the pagan, the impact of Torah on paganism. From their point of view. If you look at the book of Samuel 1, chapter 4 and 5, the Palestinian, the Palestinians of those years, said when the Aaron comes to the battlefield, oh no, what are they going to do now? This is the famous God of Israel who destroyed the Egyptians 400 years earlier. Right? Just, you want to hear it? You believe me? Yes. Okay, no time for that. So yes, so they had heard of this, and in the ancient Eastern world, words had a, had great staying power, much more so than today. Today, words come and go very often. It's a very it's a very quick, you know, use and throw out type of society. So I don't know how long nine eleven is going to have staying power. But in those days, where people weren't cluttered, where their brains weren't cluttered with things, interneting or emailing or faxing or television with 200 channels which is absurd those days all you had was the spoken word so it had a great deal of staying power so you're not over here number 12 is the only prophet who goes to the pagan world and is extraordinarily successful as opposed to all the other prophets who go to the Jewish world and all fail in a manner of speaking no prophet ever changed anybody but on the other hand what's the other hand over here the prophets were able to plant the seeds that even though the great intent of the prophets was in fact to do what? Forestall destruction, change the people, they failed. You had a destruction in 722, the destruction in 586, we'll get to that on this page. But even though they failed, they were able to plant the seeds of rebirth and renewal. Yirmiyahu did it. Yemiah was able to plant the seeds of rebirth and renewal. Therefore, the Jews survived the exile of 586 and came back with renewed strength 70 or 80 years later. Right? So we know that. So that's Yonah. Now, skip Micha. Look at the last three books. Nahum Habakkuk Sifanya. We were up to this section over here. Nahum Habakkuk Sifanya. They all speak about Nineveh, the capital city of the mighty, powerful Assyrian Empire. Extraordinarily powerful for 500 years, reigning supremely. Last week we quoted Ashuribani Pal. What did he say? I have painted the mountains red with the blood of my enemies. He slaughtered, as the Nazis slaughtered, to an extraordinary degree. Sivanya so has a verse which says the trees of the field shall cry out against the cruelty of Ashur. Why? Why will the trees of the field cry out? 
because of the scorched earth policy of Assyria. Other pagan nations would conquer and let you live as you want, as long as you set my gods, set my gods, and you pay me tribute. You pay money, you're home, no problem. Pay me tribute, you I don't have an issue with that. But Assyria would scorch the earth and engage in one of the um, most innovative most innovative military strategies at that point in time, which is still true today. And we know? Exactly. Trans, right. Transplantation of population. So now I conquer a place, take these people out, I throw them all of my empire. What does that mean? That we speak, you speak Spanish? Okay. Good. I speak German, French, Arabic. I can't trust her. I can't even communicate with her. And even I start learning her language, she learns my language, I don't trust her. Because I don't really know the Southeast language. Therefore, I don't rebel. To rebel, to rebel, I need people all together gathering with the same ideology. We can't even speak to each other. So we're not going to rebel. So it's a brilliant, innovative military strategy. Transplantation of population. So of course the Jews were transplanted, and ultimately those Jews died out. They couldn't survive, they couldn't speak to anybody. They died out, they assimilated, became one of the host population, is the end of those Jews. Good. So now Sifania, this Navi number 16, who comes chronologically around 615 before the common era, Sifania comes earlier than the other two, he prophesies about the destruction of Ashur. He speaks about Horban Ashur. And the trees will call out in glee when Ashur is destroyed. Good. Nahum, number 14, does what? He records the destruction. He's your reporter on the scene. He just simply, in three or four chapters, records the destruction of this major empire, which takes place, and then is destroyed in 612 before the Common Era which is the first step towards the ultimate destruction of the Assyrian Empire. Good. Chabakuk, as we were up to last week, he is a very powerful Navi who complains bitterly about the destruction of Assyria. Why does he complain? We said it last week. He complains bitterly because after years of prophesying that it will be destroyed, it's evil, and whenever something is evil, it has to be destroyed. It's one of God's principles of... Of the, uh, that he founds the earth on. So the earth is founded by the assumption that if you are evil, you have to be destroyed. Nazism had to be destroyed because it was evil. So a union had to be destroyed because it was evil. It's that simple. Transgression brings punishment. They transgressed, they have to be punished. Not because they transgressed theologically or theistically or in any way other than morally. Amos is a model. That number... Five, uh, sorry, ten. Number ten, Amos tells us that these following nations, he quotes seven nations, they're all going to be destroyed. Why? Because they transgressed. Had they trans- not because they were pagans, right? not because they were Abu but rather why? Because they were immoral. Transgressed the universal law of morality. Not because they were pagans. God does not hold them responsible for being pagans. Rather, God holds you responsible for being immoral. So Amos tells us that. Sum Amorai is the same exact notion. Because they were immoral, they transgressed, and therefore they had to be destroyed. Clear. So why is Habakkuk so upset? Because Assyria is going to be destroyed because they were immoral. Good. But who comes in their place? Babel, Babylonia, 
and they were worse. They were abstract. So the same analogy that we gave to Hitler is destroyed, in place comes Stalin. Yeah. Yes. In, in, in a very famous battle in 609, was the second stage of destruction. In 609, there was a famous battle between Babylonia and Assyria. Right? Following? And in this battle, what takes place is something very significant, which raises, raises a great question. What is this? Thank you. No problem. Map of Israel. Well, she got it. Here's the Mediterranean. Here's the Mediterranean. Here is Europe over here. Here's Asia Minor over here. Here is Syria over here. This whole area is called Mesopotamia in difficult times. Mesopotamia or Ashur, Assyria, Assyria. And then here's Babylonia over here, right? Iraq today. Iran someplace down over here, and here's Saudi Arabia. Here's Egypt, down here, right? Here's the African continent. Then here's Egypt. So now, Assyria and Babylonia are going at it over here in 609 for the common era. Now, a very important point. What happens in this point of time? Egypt comes up the coast over here to do what? To help Assyria. Why does Egypt want to help Assyria? Because they figured they'll get eaten up by Babylon. Exactly. Because Egypt wants to support the weaker power at this point, namely Assyria. Egypt wants to support the weaker power, namely Assyria, against the much more powerful Babylonia. At this point in time, here's Jerusalem. King Yoshiahu, Josiah, comes over here and at the place called Me Megiddo, which you can visit today. We visited last time we were in Israel. This place over here, a horrifying disaster takes place. What is it? Yoshiao the king, <coughs> who is righteous and wonderful and extraordinary, dies in battle. Why is it a horrible event? <coughs> Politically, because his son Yehoiakim takes over, and he follows a pro-Egyptian policy because he's afraid of the Egyptians. And God and the Nadine say, don't follow Egypt, follow Babel. Babel is my choice, God says. And his son, Yoyakim, so on your list of dates, which we'll get to in a few minutes, he follows Egypt against the word of the prophets, and ultimately this brings about the wrath of Babylonia, and they destroy the entire Judea in 586. This is in 609. Everybody found so far? Good. That's political. That's Politically. Now, politically. Theologically or religiously, what's the problem with this? How could a righteous king die in battle? What he's doing, he thinks it's God's word. Jeremiah himself, in Yamim, mourns the death of Yoshiahu. Shouldn't have happened. Why did this happen? We can't explain it. Very difficult situation. That's 609. Stage 2. Stage 3 of destruction of Assyria was 605. It was the Battle of Karkamish, which is a city in Syria, and that was the end of the Assyrian Empire with the victory of Nebuchadnezzar, Melech Babel, over the Assyrians. Right? Good. So that's the Navi Svanya. He's so angry, so upset, that God allows for the destruction of Assyria, but in place puts Babel. So now let's look at one important line over here. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2. 
Habakkuk. Habakkuk, chapter 2. We described how angry he was in chapter 1. He carried the burden. Notice the verse, it's on page. Tafkof Samachet. Forget it. Somebody knows the page in the English. 1365. 1365. Okay, good. Okay, in a second. In the Hebrew, there's no Hebrew. Any other? It's more English ones over there. Brown. 1365. Pass them around. Share them. The first verse in chapter 1. 1-1. Hamasa, the bird. He's carrying a bird. What is he carrying a bird about? How long shall I scream out, O God, and you won't hear? I will scream out that key word. Hamas. Hamas destroyed the world in the time of the Mabul, correct? Yes, remember said that. And you don't help. Why do I see evil? Why do I see? Sure, the Hamas and thee. I see this rapacious empire in front of me and there is strife in front, all over the place. And therefore Torah shall be weak and there will never be any kind of justice. Because the evil shall crown the righteous. Mahdi shall crown the righteous, shall beat up the righteous. And there will always be a perversion of justice. The non-Jewish world shall see this. And they'll be shocked about this. What are they shocked about? Because God is supposed to provide a reign of peace and harmony. And it's not happening. We can't get it. He doesn't understand what is the law of your world, O God? What is it supposed to be? You're evil, you're punished. Why is that not happening? And he's very upset. And look at, turn the page. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand by my watch and I will stand by my tower. I'm waiting to see what will he answer me? What will... I answer on my rebuke. We discussed that last week, why he says it so strangely. It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke of God. And God answered him, not angrily. Write this vision down. Explain it on the tablets so that the one who runs can read it. What does he mean? But it's so large, so powerfully, powerful, that everybody can read it. What does he want us to read? Habakkuk, you're only looking at part of the story. There's still another vision for the time period. And there'll be an end to all of this. And it will happen. It will not lie. And if, in the famous words, if it delays, guess what you have to do as a Jew? Wait. You have to keep on waiting. Surely he will come. He won't delay. What's he talking about? The end of days. The end of days means Mashiach. So Habakkuk was only looking at one slice. He sees Babel, he sees Assyria. Very upset about it. That's small potatoes. What's really going to happen down the road? You have a long wait. But it's going to happen. Now, you might say to me, the 2,500 years since Habakkuk. That's bad. You want to say to me, it should happen. Why is it not happening? Aren't you ready for my chef to come tomorrow? Did you pack your badge yet? You may be here. Right? But? Who says it's not happening? Maybe it's happening now. Okay. I'm willing to entertain that. Maybe it's happening now. So pack it. You have a suitcase packed? Ready to go? You're there in Israel already? His mind. It's a cheaper way of flying than by El Al. Right. Very good. So, you might say, but if you were a prophet of God today, what would you tell the person who raised that question? It's been hundreds and thousands of years that we're waiting for this. Isn't this the first time in history that in the past uh, 70, 80 years that man really could end the earth? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, maybe this is the Agree. Maybe this is the answer. Agree. Absolutely, maybe this is the answer. But I'm. But it's time. We went through a lot of difficulties. If you, were, if you went through the Holocaust by the Manan, Eli Wiesel says, if Hashem didn't come when the, at the Holocaust, then he's not coming. But Iraq is the Syrians or the Babylonians or the Iranians. Uh, I'm not saying no. I, I can't read these events. I'm not saying no. But I would have wanted him to come already. So the answer is maybe he could have come, would have come, should have come. Maybe he came, we didn't know about it, and he went back. Yeah. Maybe he was wearing the wrong color hat, black hat, white hat, nobody accepted him. But we don't know. They generations. There's all kinds of rabbinic statements, midrashim, that he's here, that he's coming, he's waiting. Not to discuss right now, but because that's Talmudic, this is biblical talking about now. So this is the answer, he says, and ultimately he says in verse 4, very famous phrase, he says, the righteous man can only live by his faith. You have to believe. Who said it? you got to believe? Who? Sagmagro. He said it. I was a little more dramatic than that, but okay, if you want to go, it's okay with me. Dramatic at the time. Right, you got to believe. That's very good. Very good. So, picture for the mess. Really picture for the mess. 69. 69. So, you have to believe. That's what he says at the end. Sadiq al-Tayyahir, the righteous man lives by his faith, and that's the way Habakkuk is answered. You have to simply believe. But it's 2,000 years. But maybe we're still in the middle of the story. Maybe it's not ended yet. That could be the case. Not sure. Yeah? This seems like the first time I've ever seen uh, a direct statement from God's mouth, so <coughs> that's basically philosophical. No, there are many. That's how you define philosophical. It's, it's all, well, it's a, it's a direct statement about theology. Don't, you don't have the this, picture. I, I would say there are many. Okay, you're right. That's my question. That's my question. I see you <coughs> as unique. I've never seen this before. This is the first time I've seen a statement direct like this. Are there others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's depending on how you define philosophy. And define and how you define who is the spokesman. Here God is clearly the spokesman. Sometimes a prophet may say something, right, which is quoting God. So I'm not sure exactly what you're saying is amazing like this. Usually, what I see with a prophet speaking, it's more cryptic. Not so. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, again, you're not being clear or pointed enough, focused enough. I don't have, I don't have enough information. Okay, no, no, fine. I'm just saying because, because you're saying this is a, is a unique statement that God no, says. For me, it's the first time I've seen. <clears throat> yeah. No, I think there are many statements that one could be stricken by this, you know, by a, a type of statement of this sort. You know, I'm not sure what you know what makes this sort so strange or, or so striking to you, but it's, I think it's all over the place. You know, God's pronouncements about evil, or God's answer to Yov in 38, in Yov Job 38. I mean, even it's Saddam. God's not direct about it. Abraham asked some questions, and it's the way that God answers him that we can come to that conclusion. Okay, Saddam, that's but, correct. That's true. God's statement wasn't direct, though. It leaves us there. In the Bible, maybe it's more, in the five books of Moses, more. we'd come back to the five books of Moses, so maybe you're right, but I think there are many statements you'll see as, as very very direct like this okay let's go on a little bit now we have so there's 14, 15, 16 all are prophets who speak about Assyria one predicting destruction one describing destruction and one complaining about destruction we got that 17, 18, 19 are three post-exilic prophets what does post-exilic mean? after the exile when was the exile? Uh, it's good for the common era I think at one point of that Mr. BCA <laughs> BCA is very important 
586 with the coming, you have, you have the destruction. Then you have in 539, which we'll talk about again in a few minutes, 539, you have Cyrus of the new Persian Empire telling all the Jews to go home and rebuild Ben Amikdash. 539. Very exciting. Now, the hundreds of thousands of Jews that were in Babel or in this new Persian Empire, how many came back? 42,000. 42, As the book Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah described. 42,000 come back. Surprising to you? Shocking to you? No. Today's the same story. You are, you are enmeshed in your businesses and your families and your, you're here. Not so easy to go back. So 40,000 go back and they can't go immediately. Why not? Because the Samaritans, the Shomronim, are not letting them. And there's a battle that goes on, a civil war that goes on. Okay, good. So these Nevi'im no longer preach about idolatry. Whereas, or Zarah, idolatry was a very serious issue in biblical Israel up to the times of the Hodban of the destruction. Once the Hodban takes place, no longer is idolatry an issue. Why not? No, never. Don't blame on the rabbis. No. Because the Jews, what the Jews do? They got the message. Monotheism now is going to be our religion. The, remember, we had pointed out that Jews engaged even in child sacrifice in chapter 7 of Jeremiah. And they not only engaged child sacrifice, what they say in child, in, about child sacrifice? They said that God wants it. Look, look at chapter 7 of Jeremiah. Verse um, 32. Announce the page, please. It's Yidamiyah, Ked in the Hatophet, or the Hatophet, leave that word alone for a moment, the Geben Hinom. Now, Geben Hinom is a valley of the man known as Hinom, which is right outside the wall of Yerushalayim, the valley of Hinom. That's where, right second, that's where child sacrifice took place, which came to be known in rabbinic literature later on as Gehinam or Hell. There's the fires of Hell. Gehinam, which became later on in rabbinic literature, is a biblical reference to the place where they engage in child sacrifice. Right. Right, correct. Yeah, I think we've all done that. Now, why was, why was there a talk there? What does the talk mean in Hebrew? A drum. Archaeologists speculate that the reason that they had a drum over there was to drown out the cries of the screaming children. Who was the god to whom they gave the children? Molech. Who was Molech? Molech was really named the king god, Melech, but the Bible wants to make fun of the king's name. If they don't call him by his name, Melech, call him Molech. And what does Molech have the same Nikudot as? Borshet. What does Borshet mean? Shame. That's a little bit inner biblical irony. Wait, wait, wait. Did everybody get that? His name was Melech, the king of the pagan deities. The Bible does not want to use his correct name. Therefore, they laugh at him by using a pseudonym, a false name. Namely, Molech, which is the same Nekudot as Boshet, which means shame. This God, again, it can be biblical. If you look at another time, you get it. It's not your fault. It's that... They were calling him by the same name. Same what? Same Nikudot, vowels. As, as the word, more, the, the, wait, wait, wait. It's not a big leap. For them, it's not a big leap. The name, his name was Melech. We're not going to call him by his name. We're going to make fun of his name. And what is, what is Molech? 
what nikudot do we want to use? If you want to make fun of Melech, what, and you had to use vows, what vows would you use? What do you want? To, you want to make a comment on what, he's, what he asks or what he does? Name a child sacrifice. So what do you shame? So Borsha means shame. Uh, not, not a good buying thing. it. Sorry? He's not buying it. <laughs> Again, if you were there then, how about the better? <laughs> I don't want to say what I was going to say. What are, what are my kids... I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to elaborate because I don't think it's nice. But what do yeshiva kids use for Oto Ha'ish? Oto Ha'ish, you know what I mean, Oto Ha'ish? You don't have to know that. Okay, I'll tell you later. But they... You know what you know about Oto Ha'ish? 2,000 years ago, Oto Ha'ish? Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't want to use this publicly. I think it's inappropriate. Okay. But in that context, kids will use another term. Right? I know you have kids all the time, and I, it's embarrassing, so I don't want to say it. It's, you know, it's on tape. So. <laughs> can we have 18 minutes of erased tape over here? <laughs> they can scan it out. They can scan it out, okay. So, are they all about 18 minutes? We're dating ourselves? Too young. Okay. So, in any case, so that was the notion of that pagan deity called Molech. He demanded child sacrifice. Akiyasa found him. What was he? He had his hands outstretched like this, had a big hole in his stomach area. The child was placed on his hands. He rolled down through the stomach area, and the fire was below him. And the child burned. Wait, wait, wait. So that's. So that's wait, 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 wait. So that's called Avodat Molech. And over here in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, who came late. Jeremiah started 627 before the coming year and goes through 586. And because of this, God brings a destruction upon the Jewish people. And he says over here that this place is Gehariga, is the valley of death, and they will bury Betrophen. In this place they have this huge drums to drown out the screams of the, cry, the cries of the children. Therefore there will be no place left because everyone's going to die. Once you've done this, once you've done this, you've really transgressed. And of course, the key word over here would be verse 31. They will build, they built Bamot, altars with the drums in Gainon to, to burn, to burn their children and their sons and their daughters with fire that I never commanded. What are the people saying? Hashem, God wants child sacrifice. So they've assimilated pagan notions to such an extraordinary degree that they thought that God wants child sacrifice. Imagine that. So they were Jewish. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Therefore, destruction has happened. That's correct. They were, assimilating, they were assimilating the host values of the pagan nations which surrounded them. To the, to the same degree that many religions assimilate notions. What's it called? Syncretism. Thank you. Syncretism means you assimilate many different ideas of other religions and you end up with a new religion. Right? So you have that. Okay, good. Sorry? It's a whole one? Oh, never heard of that. Is that a contemporary one? It's a black African. Oh, okay. It's a different color candle. I never heard of that. It's a black one. It's a stamp with a different So, so God did not command us. They thought God did. That assimilation means destruction. But once they have been destroyed in 586, this is the spirit of time. Jeremiah is the prophet of destruction. Once they are destroyed in this particular context, what happens at this point? The Jews get the message 
and idolatry is uprooted, idolatry, paganism is uprooted from the Jewish myths, therefore, prophets 17, 18, 19 are not concerned whatsoever about idolatry. So God's point actually is made. Idolatry means destruction. So that's clear. Now, you pay a price for that. What price did God pay? He loses his temple. He lost his people. But he's willing to do that. Hashem is willing to lose his people and his temple and furthermore, what? Sorry? Exactly. Reputation. And all of a sudden, what's going to happen? What are they going to say about us? That you were not able to defend your people. That you allowed your people because you were weak. They're not going to conclude because they had sinned, therefore they were punished. What are they going to conclude? Because you got a weak, and therefore your people were destroyed. But he's willing to lose his reputation, well put. Why? Because more important is down the road in rooting out idolatry from the midst of the Jewish people. Clear? So that's what we're up to over here. David's question. I was only going to say that it's not a discussion for now, but I would like to just raise it as a point. I take offense to the idea that God did not want child sacrifice. A certain reading of the Akedah episode leads me to always think that, that you can read it in such a way that God may have desired child sacrifice. Did you read the ending or just the beginning? The ending. What does the ending say? The ending says, Now I know that you have done that you are. And therefore, stay your hand. That's the most powerful statement. God says, I don't want child sacrifice. The beginning is normative paganism. Agree. God says, I want your kid, is known with the paganism. And Abraham, as a person living in, among pagans, would say, this is not surprising to me. God, the gods want paganism. That's not surprising. That's fine. But the end, the last two, three, four verses, where God says, no, I don't want this, is a revolutionary statement. The whole Akedah is there for that reason, we would say. It's there because they want, God wants a point and says, I don't want it. And in Baikah 18 says, I don't want it. Right? In Baikah 18. Why do you say that it shows that he wants it, David? Because I think the, the ending of the story is somewhat ambiguous. That's ambiguous at all! I think it is. Why? <laughs> <laughs> For another occasion. We'll go back to Beta Sheet. I just want to raise that. Okay. I think it is ambiguous. Point rejected. We can raise it again later <laughs> on. Because we don't buy it. So it's, it's um, what's it? It's, um, and the lawyers over here, it's uh, stained or it's um, overruled? Overruled. Right, thank you. Sorry? His daughter. His daughter. Okay, we're going to come back to that short scheme. We're going to come back to that later on. Okay? So now, you have in front of you the last three prophets. are not concerned about idolatry. Rather, they're concerned about under what conditions can we rebuild Ben Amikdash. Any time, any building, we need instruction. There's no menorah. There's no this. There's no Elmet's back. What do we do now, oh God? That's their issues. Now, if you look at Malachi, who is very significant in that he's the last prophet, the last Navi, he's the last word of God to us. And there's two significant statements that we ought to look at. First, look at Malachi, and look at, it's on page, it's the last Navi, it's on page, Brown, chapter 1. You're on the right page. Almost, 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 alm
There's no vision over here. Masa means burden. He's carrying a burden. Something that's disturbing him greatly. What's disturbing him greatly? He says in verse 2, I've loved you, God says. He's now quoting God. I've loved you. And you challenged that thing. He said, how have you loved us? So God answers this. An interesting dialogue. He says, one second. Yaakov, Yitzhak had two children. Esav and Yaakov, God says. And I loved Jacob. So I've chosen you. And I hated Esav, the brother of Yaakov. And I destroyed his mountains. This is something that Obadiah spoke about 200 years earlier. Right? Obadiah spoke about this issue 200 years earlier. And I destroyed his inheritance. And he goes on and on and on and on. All about this that... What did the Jewish people then do? Look at verse... Six. Ben Yechabed Ab, a child son respects his father, and a servant respects his master. Now, if I'm your father, where is the respect you're giving me? If I'm your master, where is the you should have of me? I speak to you, the priests, who shame my name. And you say, well, how do we shame your name, O God? It's an amazing dialogue between Hashem or the Navi and the people. Well, what do you do? Verse 7 says, You bring on my altar disgusting putrid bread. And you say, how is it putrid? They give moldy bread to God, it's kind of shameful to God. And then you end up saying, Now, if we were analyzing this whole entire bit, we'd have to come up with, understand explanations, why is this going on over here? Why are they bringing moldy bread to God? Why are they giving uh, putrid sacrifices to God? Interesting question. They bring animals that are blind, because they didn't care, that are sick, that are lame. And they all do it. And they say to them, You sacrifice that near your doors. Would you do that? Do you think your deity that you're worshipping would want that? There's a social context over here that we're not describing. We want to figure out down the road, perhaps, why that is the case. Why are the Jews doing all this? Right? Not to worry about it right now. But what is of great importance over here, look a little bit ahead. And here we talk about the chosen, namely the priests. Now we're in 450 before the common era. 450, right? And God says in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, I gave you commandments that my covenant shall be with the tribe of Levi, or the Quanim. So says God Almighty. My covenant was with him. Life and peace. I asked him to fear me and he feared me. And in front of my name he was intensely awestruck. A Torah truth was in his mouth. No evil was found on his lips. With peace and with integrity he walked with me and many returned from sin. The lips of the Kohen shall safeguard knowledge and people shall seek out instruction or Torah from his mouth. He is like an angel. That's the Kohen Levi. Now, what this is important for is it tells me that from the time that Aharon was a Kohen, namely, say, 1250 before the Common Era, all the way to 450 before the Common Era, Kohanim was a teaching tribe. Levi was a teaching tribe. Which means, this tries to solve the problem of what happens if there are no teachers in Israel? We think. You must have teachers. So, there's a tribe that is geared to teaching on a full-time basis. Kohanim were not allowed to own property. Correct? Their function was to serve in, this, in the sanctuary, in the Mikdash. They served there. In the Mikdash. But how would they serve? One week out of a year. At most. One week out of a year. There were plenty of Kohanim families. How much work did you have? What was their primary occupation? To teach. 
Why is that important? Are great teachers made or born? Made. We agree. I know of one exception. <laughs> no, I say it. Oh, Why do I say that? Because I agree with David. Because if you're a great teacher, how you made, you're taught how to communicate. You're taught how to use pedagogically sound, effective means of communication. A great teacher to watch is an awesome experience. Interactive, engaging, knowing how to tell a story at the right time in order to keep his crowd engaged, knowing when to go on a tangent. He's not really going on a tangent. He wants to keep his audience focused by not letting their minds drift off. So he uses a tangent which might relate to them in one way or another. And I'll give you other examples of that. So a good pedagogue is a great phenomenon to watch. But you're made. So now if you know, you're from the family of and you know that you're going to be that person who's going to teach others. And what's hanging in the balance? Everything is hanging in the balance. Why is everything hanging in the balance? Because if we don't teach, then the selective process ends. So the job of the Kohanim was to teach, they had to teach effectively, they had to communicate well. And that's taught. So if you know that your kid's going to be a teacher, you have to know how to teach him how to become a great teacher, an effective teacher, a great communicator. So it's all about as a teacher. So when you do that, and you're part of the Kohanim, you're successful. Truth, integrity, all this is part and parcel of what becoming a great teacher is all about. So I know now that from the year 1250 with the Haron, going all the way down to Malachi 450, about 800 years, the Kwanim's role was to be a teacher. Right? Good. Point number one. Now, Malachi is the last, we mentioned this three weeks ago, is the last word of God. So what is the last word officially that God says to us? We look at the last chapter, chapter 3, verse 22. The last words of Malachi or of God to Jewish people is, Zichru Torah Moshe Avdi. Remember the Torah of Moshe. Now this is 800 and 50 years after it was given. Remember the Torah of Moshe, my servant, that I commanded him in Horeb, right, to all of Israel, statutes and laws. I am going to send you, Eliyahu and Avi, before the great awesome day of God, when Mashiach comes. What is he going to do? He's going to bring harmony and peace. Heshiva Avot Abanim. going to bring harmony and peace between fathers and sons. And the hearts of sons to the fathers. He's going to reconcile that famous generation gap between fathers and sons. And if perchance he fails at this, I destroy everything. It's an amazing end to God's story. The Mashiach is going to come. We end with Tikkun Olam. Mashiach is going to come. There's going to be a period of time where there's going to be great harmony between parents and children. The hearts of the fathers to the sons, and the hearts of the sons to the father. Maybe. Correct. It's a maybe. Because it's up to us to do it. Yeah. And if we don't do it... It's, all, it's, it's the end of the road. Because if you can reconcile, ultimately, parents and children together, and children and parents together, then you can't do the then I'll destroy the earth. Because that natural blood connection should prevail between parents and children. If it doesn't, there's no hope. Therefore, then that's the end of the story. But the, so the last words of Hashem through the Navi, through Malachi the Navi, before the common era, is one of Tikkun Olam, is one of Mashiach, of the role of Mashiach. And God says, I'm going to send Eliyahu Navi before the great day that comes, he's going to do this. Doesn't work? Destruction. That's the last word. Okay? So now you've covered, essentially, 19 books from 1 through 19 of the prophetic literature. Early prophets, later prophets. Correct? Good? Obviously, I've only given you a smattering 
of the ideas, ideals, and values that are contained in these 19 books. There's a whole host of other ideas and thoughts that we'll come back to if we have the time. But in the interest of time, we want to cover a little bit about the books of the writings next week. Again, a two, two weeks, right. Yeah, two weeks. Yeah, next week's Tanit Estes, so it's two weeks from now. Correct? A little bit about all of these books of the writings, right? The Ketuvim. And then we want to go back to the five books of Moses, which is really the source of all the ideas, ideals, and values, and cover them very much in depth. Four minute break, and we start the next class. Thank you.